And yet, Lord, we know that all the action and advocacy and justice that we seek to be about must first be informed, Lord, from a place of presence with you. And so as we as a church, Lord, prepare for, for, for Easter in the season of Lent, we pray, Lord, that as we kind of slowly unpack this 23rd Psalm, that you would open us up, Lord, to your presence for us, in us. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us. In your name we pray. Amen. Psalm 23, your sermon title today is called The Greatest Ever. The Greatest Ever. That... Um, so the 23rd Psalm is generally regarded of all of David's Psalms as maybe the greatest. Uh, there's about 100, there is 150 Psalms. David wrote about 75 of them, most scholars think. And yet this is the Psalm that many consider the greatest. In lists of great world literature that often it's Psalm 23 if a piece of biblical scripture is added to the list of the world's great selections. It's the greatest. And it teaches us that the Lord is a guide to us, a shepherd. We're going to be talking more about guide in a couple weeks as we kind of week by week unpack each verse of this psalm. But it had me thinking, uh, when I think about shepherding and I think about guiding, uh, remind me of my own experiences learning to be a salmon fishing guide in Canada. When I started guiding Canada, I was 11, just turning 12 And this summer it hit me in fresh ways as my son is the exact age now as I was when I started to guide. I guided out of a 23-foot boat on the inside passage that some days looked like this and many days did not. And uh, I had spent a couple years apprenticing, being ready. This is my son and again, this is the age I was when I started to be a guide. And on the evening before my first guiding experience, when I was 11, just about to become 12 years old, I was feeling pretty confident. I mean, I was 11 going on 12. What could possibly go wrong? I had four grown men in a $100,000 boat leading them for a day of salmon fishing. I had a lot of confidence. That probably won't come as a shock to many of you. Uh, I was feeling prepared because I had, you know, I was down on the boat, I was setting my rods and reels and, you know, kind of getting all my tackle set, and I was, you know, pretty certain of how the day would go tomorrow, and then my mom showed up, and she said, son, I'd like to anoint your boat, I'd like to do a little blessing on it. It wasn't typical of our faith life as a family, and even at that point, I wasn't even really a Christian, but as any good fisherman tell you, we'll take any help we can get, right? So I was like... Sure, whatever you got. Like, I just want to catch fish tomorrow. So, yeah, so she got, the, uh, she got some, like, petroleum jelly, and she started, like, putting crosses all over the boat. And it wasn't weird. I mean, maybe a little bit. It was, like, really, it was beautiful. It's like, I want to bless you because tomorrow you're setting off on a journey, and you're not certain what will happen. I'm like, Mom, what could possibly go wrong? Well, I was about to find out because the next morning, I headed out with my four grown men at about five in the morning, maybe about 4.30 actually. As we headed out in the, you know, in the calm waters as the dawn was on the inside passage, I was feeling confident and all these men were looking at me like, seriously? Like, you're going to put me in a boat with an 11-year-old kid as my guide? Like, and so we get out, we're on the north side of Malcolm Island, we're trolling just like this, setting rods, all this and that, and, and pretty soon around us, boats are catching fish. Like, there's another one, there's another one, and people on my boat are like, oh, they've got one, and they're looking at me. 
oh, they've got one. Our rods don't move. Like, they don't move. There's not even seaweed on the rod. Like, nothing. It's like nuclear holocaust under my boat. Everyone else is having this ex- incredible experience out catching fish. And as these minutes turn into, into hours, it was, like, painfully obvious that though I thought I was prepared, though I had been anointed, I didn't really know what I was doing. And the guests, like, went from, like, confused, why is he our guide, to, you know, sullen, to angry, to silence, right? Like silence is the far side of anger, right? When it's like, there's no words anymore. By 1030 in the morning, literally just, it almost became a joke. Everywhere we would troll, other people were already there catching fish. We would get there, nothing, nothing. Our rods don't move. And I wanted to die. I wanted to just like give up. Like I'd been anointed. I thought I was prepared. I'm ready to guide others. And totally realizing that the situation that I entered into, I didn't fully have all the preparation I needed. How often we feel prepared for a journey, but then we get there and we're like, man, I didn't know it would be like this. This is exactly as we transition away from this picture and into the 23rd Psalm. It is this voice of desperation that David the author speaks in the 23rd Psalm. Scholars aren't exactly sure of which context he is talking about in the 23rd Psalm, but it's something of great difficulty. He's been anointed and he's encountered great resistance. It's either in that period where he's been anointed king, but there's already a king and Saul wants to kill him and David is in the wilderness and it's in in that place or it's either at the end of his life when his own son, Absalom, is started a coup to kill David and and David's forces are out battling Absalom's forces. We don't know where it is, but we know that David knew distance. David knew anxiety. David knew dissonance. David knew sin. David knew brokenness. David knew what it was like to be in situations where he thought he was prepared and utterly prepared. And yet out of this psalm, we have a picture of God's presence and this this call to trust instead of to distance ourselves from who God promises to be in our life. And the thing about Psalm 23 that makes it the greatest is the hope for each and every one of us in any situation we face that this God of presence, this God of intimacy, this God who shows up can be counted on even when the fishing's not going so well. Said one scholar about the 23rd Psalm, no single psalm has expressed more powerfully human's prayer of confidence out of the depths to the God whose purpose alone gives meaning to the span of life from womb to tomb. This is the 23rd Psalm. David, knowing great dissonance in his life, choosing to continue to believe that it's God's presence leading him that is truly what he needs in each and every situation. And so what we're going to do today, and we're going to look at Psalm 23, 1a, the first few words of the psalm. And during the next six weeks of Lent, we'll be slowly reading and learning and memorizing Psalm 23. And in these first few words of Psalm 23, we want to learn the foundations for the psalm and some of the history of King David and the reason these words still matter for us. So let us begin with the first word of Psalm 23, the Lord. We're going to look at just the first few words of Psalm 23. Now, if we were reading this in Hebrew, the first, if Psalm 23 in Hebrew, the first word you're going to encounter is actually not, because it's talking about the next part of Psalm 23 that 
I lack nothing. It's a modifier that the way that Hebrew sentences are constructed. But for all intensive purposes, Psalm 23 begins with just two words. The Lord, shepherd. The Lord. Let's look at the Lord. It's the first word of Psalm 23. It's the Lord. And what David does here, he says, the Lord is a personal God. That, you know, kind of when you're reading scripture, if you read in the original language, it's, you know, that age-old adage, or what's in a name? For For David, it's everything. Because as David starts to construct the 23rd Psalm, he could have called God a lot of different names. The, the, the Hebrew people had all sorts of different names for God. There was El Shaddai, the God Almighty, El Elyon, God Most High, El Olam, God Eternal, Elohim, Creator and Sustainer. All of these would have been accurate, but David doesn't start with, with those names for God. God himself calls himself different things in the scriptures. In Exodus 6, God says to Israel, he says, I'll take you as my own people and I will be your God. That my presence in your life is not dictated by you choosing me. I've already chosen you. And you might think, well, that's great. How does 2,500 years ago Israel relate to our life? We are given as New Testament Christians Israel's story both as historically true and also spiritually accurate to our own journey in Christ. And God says in Exodus 6, I'll be your Elohim. I'll be your God. I will be a power. I'll be a God of might. I will deliver you. I can be counted on. And for people that are setting out from Egypt into the wilderness, they needed that power. That's Elohim power when God says, I'm the Elohim God. No, but David doesn't start Psalm 23 with Elohim. He starts with this other word, Yahweh. Psalm 23 begins with Yahweh Roy. Lord, intimate Lord, and shepherd. Those are the two words that David starts with. And the reason he uses Yahweh is because this is God's name when he's speaking to himself in intimacy. This comes from when when God spoke to Moses. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And I am translates in Hebrew to Yahweh. The I am, Yahweh. I mean, you get in all sorts of debates about the exact meaning of Yahweh, but one of my friends who's a pastor at Ballad, he says, the best description of Yahweh is simply this, closer than your breath. That when God is referred to as Yahweh, it's an intimate, personal, experiential God, that God is closer than our breath. Now, that's amazing, Because this promise of presence will guide this entire psalm, that God is a God who who speaks into our life. God is a God who fashioned us out of the very dust of the earth. He fashioned us with his hands, and then he gave us us his breath. Ruah is the spirit of life given in Hebrew, given to, to, to fill our lungs. When we say that we were made in the image of God, that God wasn't just, you know, kind of distance and thinking about creating humanity, that he fashioned us from the dust and then gave us his breath. We have the breath of God inside of us. And if you've ever been with humans when the breath has departed, you're painfully aware in that moment how life and death really is just a matter of breaths. We've been given the breath of God, of Yahweh, of intimacy and personal connection to God. And why does that matter? Because our faith is not supposed to be just religion. It's supposed to be relationship. And in this season of Lent, the 40 days that the church historically has used to prepare for the time of Easter, we want to be preparing our hearts, preparing to engage in God in a relationship in our lives. 
Well, I did that already, Scott. I did that years ago. Now, friends, this is for all of us in the room that this journey of Lent might be a time for us to experience the Yahweh God, this intimate, personal, breath-giving God today for me. A woman came up after the first service and said, you know, it's just, it's just so true that my faith has been quite often what I'm going to give to my kids, what I'm going to give to my spouse, what I'm going to do in the marketplace. But today, God reminded me that he personally cares for me. This is the presence, the Lord, the personal God that can be counted on. And that for many of us, we need to be just reminded that God is a God of both Elohim power and Yahweh intimacy. Psalm 77 says it this way, when we just think about who God is. This isn't David, this is another writer, Psalm 77, verse 10. Then I thought, says the psalmist, to this I'll appeal. They come from a place of doubt and discouragement. You can read Psalm 77 on your own. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. The psalmist says, I'll remember the deeds of the Lord, the Yahweh, the intimate God. Yes, I'll remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider the works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your ways, God, are holy. What God is is as great as our God. You're the God who performs miracles. You display your power among peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. The water saw you, God. The water saw you and writhed. The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in a whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Your path led through the sea. Your way through the mighty waters, though your footprints were not seen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This God of intimacy and power and presence is Yahweh, who wants to engage every one of us in the room, in our own hearts this season, in new and fresh ways. And church, I want to I suggest to us that when we have a proper view of who God is, it helps us understand who we are. And that our identity that we're constantly kind of waffling over, it all flows from an accurate depiction of who God is. God is, is Elohim God of power, but he's the Yahweh God of personal connection. And so I want to take the challenge as a church of memorizing Psalm 23 this season. We're going to just, every, every week, we're going to add on a verse. So you ready to memorize Psalm 23 with me? Who wants to do that this Lent season? Okay, thank you. Let's start. The Lord is my shepherd. Say it with me. Good, you're done. You're, you've memorized this week's verse. All right, how great is that? Like, you, you, like count it as a success. We've memorized something together. And we're going to keep coming back to this each and every week because we want to use Psalm 23 as a guide for us that God is a God of personal connection. Personal connection. I got it. I mean, some of you are visiting this morning, and so I just ask you to just bear with us. But for the people of this church, I need to just make a connection with you real quick. The last week, if I could be really blunt, I was discouraged. Because last week I wrapped up Philippians and I was talking about contentment. And sometimes, North, I'm your pastor and I love you, but I'm going to say some hard words to you. At times, I feel like if I talk about brokenness and weakness and waiting, I've got you like right in the palm of my hands. Yes, life is hard. You know, like, yeah. But if I speak to you about contentment 
and joy and the goodness of God and the holiness that God is calling us to, I feel like at times some of our arms start to get crossed because we, well, you know, I don't want to get legalistic. And, and I've, I've heard this one before. And we run the risk with Psalm 23. It's the same way when I teach Jesus stories where I feel like at times with our congregation there's a distance of a, a lack of engagement in our own hearts. I know you've heard these words before. But during this season, the Lord wants to encounter you in new ways. Yahweh, the Lord, cares about you personally. And I was kind of dealing with a little bit of discouragement, and I feel like God gave me this, this image I'd like to just share with you. And in the imagery where I was like, I don't know if you've seen Greatest Showman, a lot of fun, good movie. I, I felt like I was like P.T. Barnum and on stage, and I'm like singing and dancing and telling stories, and all of it to try to get you to see the glory of God. And, and in, in this little like vision that God gave me, like there's, there's, there's you and there's me and, and there's God, and I'm like, trying to clean this glass so that you can see clearly. And I just, I want to do everything in my power. I pray about this moment all week long. I, I'm praying for you. I'm caring. I, but all of it isn't the showman. All of it is for the glory of God. And so in my vision, I'm like cleaning the glass and trying to get a clear view. But you know sometimes how like glass can become opaque from like rubbing it too hard. And, and I was getting and growing discouraged. And then I'm like, forget it. And I just want to grab you and take you with me to where God is. And I had this vision of like, I'm still dressed as the showman. And I'm trying to like run back and forth. And I felt like God saying, just stop. I'm already coming out around the corner, Scott. There's no, there's no glass. Let me be their savior. Let me be their Lord. Let them encounter me in new and fresh ways. Everything we do on a Sunday, all of the show and the lights, it's nothing. The only thing that matters is that you experience Yahweh, the Lord, your God, who cares for you in a personal matter. So David starts this psalm with this Yahweh, and then his second word he uses is shepherd. The Hebrew word is actually Roy. So the, the beginning, if we take out that modifier no, which we'll come to next week, it's really just two words which frames the beginning of Psalm 23. Yahweh, Roy. Lord, shepherd. So David's like, we're just going to start at the foundations. The shepherd. It's used in the Hebrew scriptures over 165 times. And, and when David says shepherd, everyone in, in, in you know, Hebrew people would understand that this means a focus on care and concern. And then when we think of the sheep and the shepherd, David says, the Lord is, the, the, is my shepherd. We'll get to mine in just a moment. We need to start with the shepherd piece. David, though we understand there's this like holy trilogy of shepherds because God's favorite people were shepherds, you know, by vocation, Abraham and Jacob and, and and Moses, and then David, and then even Peter, Jesus would say to him, you know, will you shepherd my sheep, will you feed my sheep? But I, I need you to see something here. Like, the reality with sheep, domesticated sheep especially, they're not very smart. Like, sheep will stay in one place, and if there's no food, they'll keep trying to eat. And in rare cases, they can actually eat all the food, and they will die even though fresh food is only a couple hundred yards away. Sheep need a shepherd to be led to food and water. Sheep need a shepherd in order to protect them from, from any, any species trying to devour them. The sheep need the shepherd. Okay, the sheep need the shepherd. David is not saying, be a shepherd. David is saying, I'm a sheep. 
He's saying, the Lord is my shepherd. And though David himself was a shepherd, which we'll talk more about next week, David says, first things first, I am the sheep. And the point of Psalm 23 is that we follow Christ, that we put ourselves in a place of dependency, understanding that, yes, we'll lead others. Yes, we'll speak out against gun violence. Yes, we'll do and, and be. And, but it all comes from a place of dependency. We are the sheep. And for David to say those words in an ancient Jewish context where sheep were laid on an altar and sacrificed to God daily, David David is saying, my life is nothing before you, God. You're the good shepherd. And of course, he's kind of pointing the way to where Jesus would say of himself in John, I am the good shepherd. I am the way to life. I am the way to meaning. So when... When David says here, Yahweh, Roy, Lord, Shepherd, he's saying, like, this is what it means. All of us must learn to be dependent on a shepherd. We don't have to, we don't have to do and become, and we have to first start and know that we are the sheep. And when we do that, it will lead to a posture of humility and dependency, we say, man, I, I, of course I'm overwhelmed right now. Of course I'm out fishing without, you know, catching anything. Of course there's times where I can feel overwhelmed by what's coming. Of course, but I'm not the shepherd in the situation. God, you are my shepherd. You're the personal God who's shepherding me. And this is what's so cool when you study the ancient language. Because Yahweh Roy, Lord Shepherd, the way shepherd Roy is used in this verse, it's actually a verb. It's an action word. It's a, it's a doing something word. And so David is saying, God, you're, you're in the midst of shepherding me. And when you know that, you can believe in the promise that though your present situations might be tricky, confused, frustrated, angsty, you know, not catching anything, if you use my metaphor, whatever your metaphor is, God will always come through because he's in the process of shepherding us. That's the beauty about David's life. David knows his faith has already sustained him in wild places. There's this part in 1 Samuel where David says, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. And so he goes out to to slay Goliath because he knows God has protected me in the past. He's been good to me. And we get obsessed thinking about the next chapter God might write. Do not miss today the chance for God to shepherd you. Don't miss it. Stop being obsessed with what God might do next. Know that God today promises to care for you. He does. But it's tricky sometimes when we're out just waiting for God to do something. I mean, it's now 11 o'clock in the morning to my earlier illustration. We have trolled for almost five and a half hours without a bite while watching what felt like hundreds of fish caught around. Like, just so you, I can put it in context, for a guide, this equals failure. Like, worst guide ever. You know, first day on the job, worst guide ever. People in my boat, just so angry, checked out, you know. And in this moment of just like, what have I got to learn? I just kind of gave up. And I knew the blessing that I'd been anointed with clearly wasn't working, because if the anointing had worked, then there'd be more fish in my boat. That was how I was thinking. And so everyone's, you know, the whole fleet is like kind of working one little shelf on the North Shore of Malcolm Island. I'm like, forget it. It's not working for me. And so we troll off the end of the island, out kind of past the edge of the island. We're hundreds of yards from any other boat. We're out in a tide rip, out where there's just like small little pink salmon. 
And everyone knows you only catch the big fish down deep. And I put, you know, a couple of rods up top with six ounce and little pink hoochie. I was trying to catch anything. Like I wanted, I would have netted a herring and like put it in our fish box. I needed any measure from like my, my like utter failure as a fisherman. And so I'm like, I'll take anything. Give me a four-pound pink salmon, and I'll celebrate that puppy. Like, but again, we had had nothing. And so we trolled off the island. Now, I got to tell you, I didn't know exactly what I expected happened, but I didn't believe that God was going to be about to do a miracle or something. And out there about 15 minutes for the end of our morning session, sure that my anointing was failed. But the rod starts going, and the guys woo, go from angry to like, we're excited, and woo, 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 you know, like, this is what fishing is with me is like. There's like video game sounds coming out of my mouth, but it's super exciting. It's in, it's out, we, we, we net this thing, we lay it on. This is my first day on the job, and there on the deck is a 37 pound Chinook King salmon. All right, and I go from failure to like, who's your daddy? Like, just fear, you know, like. <laughs> Just like, yeah, you know, it's amazing how we go from like failure to like false pride, like in no time flat. And I'll tell you, like in almost 40 years of doing that work up there, never again was a fish like this taken in that area with that setup on that rod in that location. But can we just, can we just do this? Can we stop measuring God's goodness by what's on the deck? Or in the net? Like, was God shepherding me even if we didn't catch anything all morning? And was I supposed to learn something else? It's a mystery, the way in which our lives are lived. But what's not a mystery is that Yahweh, the personal God, promises to shepherd us. And sometimes that'll look like fishing without success. And other times it'll mean success beyond our control. But can we trust no matter what's in the net, that this God is shepherding us. How this little piece of text ends is this modifier to take the Lord, the shepherd, and make it my. David doesn't say, he doesn't say God is the shepherd, or he doesn't say God is a shepherd. David says of Yahweh, the God of, of heaven and earth, he said he's my shepherd, and he knows God, not from a place of religion, but of relationship. That the God of heaven desires for you to be known, connected to him. And though we love to speak at you, really at the end of your days, what will matter is your encounter with God himself. Not your parents' encounter, not your spouse's encounter, or your roommate's, or something that you were spoon-fed from the time you were young. At the end of our days, all we'll have is our own encounter with Jesus. And my radical hope this season during Lent is that as a church, we would each and every one of us encounter Jesus again. That we would find ourselves not sitting arms folded, but that we would find ourselves in the next six weeks face to face with an intimate God who's shepherding us, me, like there's this amazing quote from Brennan Manning in his book called Lion and Lamb where Manning says this, to believe means to realize not just with the head but also with the heart that God loves me in a creative, intimate, unique, reliable, and tender way. With our heads and our hearts that God loves me in all these specific ways. Who do you say is the Lord of your life? Who is lording you right now? 
When's the last time you had a face-to-face encounter with Jesus? If it's been a while, I want to encourage you that this season, God wants to spend time with you. And this isn't a guilt trip, this is just an invitation. That God wants to extend his radical love and his overwhelming peace and his unmatched mercy, but he wants to do it with you. Like, that's incredible. And this is where Psalm 23 lands us, that we would be knowing in this narrative that we don't need to shepherd others in this season. We just need to start from a place of being the sheep and experiencing the love of God. To, to tell about this more, Jesus can, tells his disciples a story about feeling like the radical love of God is for each and every one of us. This comes from Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Church, be wary of muttering. It will destroy God's intimacy in your life. And then Jesus told this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after that lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. And he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. And I'll tell you in that same way, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is the gospel. This is a reckless love where God is saying, I care about you, not for what you might do for me, but for who you are. That while you were still a sinner, I came for you. And while you were still far from me, I loved you, and I will always go after the one who's not yet here. Now, a couple things about this this parable that just wrecked me. It's like, who are the 99? The 99 only will stick around for two reasons. First, if they know in their heart that they were once the one, if they know in their heart that their gathering was informed by a bunch of other ones that became part of the 99, they don't gather to be part of the 99. They they stay gathered because they know that they were the one too. And when you have that perspective of gratitude, you wait and you don't care who the shepherd brings back. Are they bringing back a tall one or a small one? A black one or a white one? A gay one or a straight one? Who might he bring back to vote? You don't care. Because you're so grateful that you were once a sinner too and he came for you. And you let the shepherd do the choosing. The second thing about the 99 is they take comfort in in their shared life together. They're safe because they're gathered together. And this is the thing, like, we need each other. We, the 99. But Jesus says, you all, at some point in your life, you were the one and I came for you. You were the one that I worried about. You were the one that I pursued. You were the one I loved. You were the one I put on my shoulders and I came back and I threw a party on you, each and every one. This is what the gospel is is about. And this season of Lent, my hope is that us at a church, that this would be our call. I am the one. I'm the one. And yeah, I've been a faith follower for a long time. I've been a Jesus follower. I've been, you know, but, but just in new and fresh ways, reminded that I am the one. Say it with me, church. Say, I am the one. And turn to someone next to you and say, you are the one. And you guys sound so depressed, but that's okay. Like, I, maybe just a little bit more joy. Like, I am the one. I am the one. I am one. Yes. 
I had this experience this week where I was like so excited about coming and bringing this message to you all. And I'm like, hey, you know, I, I, this is me running. I just want them to remember they're the one. And like, you know, it's not what they do, but it's like who they are. It's not like if they're married or not, if they're a parent or not, if they're doing this. Like none of that matters, that they're the one that Jesus came to save and be in relationship with. And I was just thinking about all the different people, you know, and, you know, all the different ways that I wanted God to encounter you. And then it became really personal because this Yahweh personal God is constantly coming for us. And that's where God just spoke to me so clearly and said, Scott, stop it. Stop worrying about the oneness for everyone else until you remember yourself that you are the one too. This is very applicable to those of us in the room that are carrying a burden for somebody. We want God to show up and they, we want them, you know, it's my kids or my mom or my friend. Like we're constantly like trying to bring other people to the foot of the cross. But Jesus in this parable says, start from a place of presence for you. And know this perspective changes the outcome that Jesus says, we are the one. I am the one. I'm the one. And I want this time of Lent, these next six weeks for us as a church, just to more and more and more as we meditate on this psalm, as, as, we, as we memorize this psalm, to know the presence of God, not for someone else. We'll get to that later. But it starts today for me and for you making it personal for you. And so we're going to do something we don't often do. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. And we're going to just take a moment before we close in song to just do a little reflecting. Brendan Manning in his book, again, on Lion and Lamb, he says, Christianity happens when men and women experience the unwavering trust and reckless confidence that come from knowing the God of Jesus. And that was just a word that I felt like God was giving me over and over and over again this week, that reckless love demands a response, that God came for you and he loves you. And he wants you just even in, this, in these moments ahead to pause at his feet. The reckless love demands a response. What we're going to do here is the band is going to just kind of warm up to our final song. We're going to have just a small moment here, about 30 seconds of just meditating and praying. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes and settle in? And I want you just to, <clears throat> you can say these words of Psalm 23, the Lord is, is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Or you can say this phrase to yourself, I am the one. I am the one he came for. And you can do the act of remembering. What I also want you to do is just take a moment and just confess sin that's blocking God's place of Yahweh-ness in your life. Sin is anything we put as an obstacle between our worship of God and ourselves. And for some of us, there's a lot of obstacles. And so in these still small places, I want you just to speak the Lord's name and to be reminded that you are the one and to confess places that you've been falling short of remembering that. Let's meditate over this and pray over this in the silence of our own hearts together right now. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are shut. It became really clear to me this week that for some of us, we feel really far from the love of God. I had this dear old soul ask me recently, how do people become Christians in your church? Are they expected to just know that they belong to the tribe of God? 
And so what I want to do here for some of us in the room as the Spirit is moving right now in our hearts, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I know there's some of you in this room that just want to start again, letting Jesus be your shepherd. And maybe it's for the first time, maybe it's for the 10th time, I don't know, but for some of you, you're just like, I, I need a new start. I want to be a sheep in that tribe. Lord God of intimacy and power, will you shepherd me? And if that's you this morning, while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if you want to be a sheep following the great shepherd Jesus Christ, I want you just to lift your hand and where you're sitting, just go ahead and lift your hand if the Spirit is coming after you this morning. Okay? So many people. So many people wanting to follow the shepherd. You can put your hand down. No, that's just a marker, but God sees it. May this be a starting point. You can today just reach out to people who love you and love Jesus and say, I want to start again. Reckless love demands a radical response. God is calling us as a church this season to fall in love with him again because we are the one.